14.50 a.m. WKXL 103.9 FM in the Concord area, 101.9 FM, our brand new signal in Manchester and beyond. It is Kale and Company. We are presented by Weed Family Automotive, 124 Store Street in Concord, weedfamilyautomotive.com. And our guest on this edition of Kale and Company is someone who has had the courage to return uh, to the show. And it's Scott Spradling of the Spradling Group and one of New Hampshire's 200 most influential business leaders. Thank and I know you, that's man. not for the first time either, so congratulations on that. Thank you, my friend. It's great to see you again. Great to be here. Well, great to have you with us as always. And uh, uh, that was named by the New Hampshire Business Review and, of course, the, the lead vocalist of the Scott Spradling Band which I have still yet to hear, but looking forward to it sometime in the not-too-distant future, I hope. We will get you out in 2022. I hope so. I promise. I, I hope so. And former political director at WMUR-TV. And I guess, you know, the, uh, the overwhelming and overriding story here in New Hampshire and throughout the world, really, is COVID. So where do you see us standing right now, even as we speak with so, COVID? Here we are on Monday, January 17th, and trying to figure out where we go from here. I, I feel like what's happening in the rhythms of business and in the rhythms of our daily lives is the sudden reality sinking in that, okay, COVID's going to be with us indefinitely, and that quite possibly our winter month activity will look and feel a lot like it did when we first went into kind of a lockdown, mm -hmm. where January and February is when the cases spike. The holidays are a time of quick and rapid spread. Variants are a huge X factor that we can't really predict or plan for, but that we do know from past experience that the cases will start to fall. And even now we're seeing at least a few encouraging signs that that's happening in different areas around the country. So I think we're beginning to have to settle into the reality that it's not going anywhere anytime soon and we have to work with it and around it and not expect it to just simply have a finish line date of it going away and go back to the pre-COVID normal that we've always been used to. I think that reality is far off on the horizon. Yeah, and I think we will have to be dealing with various uh, variants of uh, COVID for a long time to come. I mean, it's something we're going to have to learn to live with, like like the flu. Yeah. The silver yeah. lining, I think, Ken, with all of this is that the business community, I, I think to a certain extent, the education community is certainly higher ed, has figured out how to work around it. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, technology like Zoom and the other sort of visual and audio based platforms that we can use on our computers and still get things done, even if we have to sort of stay home or stay away from one another, remains effective enough to keep our economy going. There are some bigger underpinnings, though, and I, I think one of the other fallouts with COVID big picture is that we're seeing prices rise, inflation. We're mm. seeing salaries rise by demand. We're seeing people being more selective about what they want to do and how they want to spend their careers, their free time, and the mix of the two. And we still have an employment market that while unemployment is low, we don't have everybody engaged in the system yet. And for various reasons, I think we have some uh, some new challenges that'll be on the horizon with meeting workforce, getting people back into the workforce and, and, and engaged and weaning ourselves off of the federal assistance that has propped up the economy for almost two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it is great though. I think to see more people getting out, things are not locked down as they were in the early months of the 
pandemic when we all became aware of it uh, in March, and people are living their lives more uh, these days. I recently saw a great uh, Beatles tribute show at the Palace Theater in Manchester. The place was hacked. Uh, mask wearing was optional. I would say it was about uh, 50-50, but it was just mm. great to see uh, people out and enjoying themselves. I agree, and yeah. I think it's hard because... Listen, none of us has been through anything like this before. None of us in any of our generations has experienced what we're dealing with right now. So I know there's frustrations with trying to come up with a simple set of operational rules so that we can do what you just described. Go to the Palace Theater in Manchester. Spend some time at the Capitol Center for the Arts in Concord. Go to a baseball game. Go to a football game. Whatever you want to do. Go to the movies. Um, it does feel like, because I think it's actually happening, the CDC, as our sort of lead dog in this hunt, is giving increasingly different pieces of advice. It evolves over time. Um, sometimes it's confusing. I know mm. people get frustrated with the lack of consistency. I think there have been times where they haven't gotten it exactly right. Um, but I also think that's part of the process. There's a bit of a margin for error here because we have not been through this before. So what I'm most encouraged by is the sense that an increasing number of people continue to have or are adopting that sense of, all right, I got to keep myself safe. I want to keep doing what I want to keep doing, but there's a community approach that I think most people have, which is, all right, I want to make sure others are safe as well. So what steps can I do to not just protect myself, but to, to protect people around me, strangers, friends, family, whatever. And I think that's kind of the attitude that we need to have as an underpinning to make sure we get through this together. And the, I think the, the, the greatest silver lining over the last two years is that we have a vaccine out there, a regimen out there that works and that it does protect us uh, uh, at least from hospitalizations mm -hmm. and from uh, from dying. And yeah. I think that that in and of itself is a, a, a huge comfort. And I just think we need to settle in. And, and if we're looking out for each other, then we're all going to be fine. Well, as you mentioned, uh, one of the impacts, the uh, the disease has had, COVID has had, is the supply shortage that we're experiencing. Uh, to me, and I, and I go into a lot of grocery stores and places of business, it doesn't seem to be impacting New Hampshire as much as it has in other states. And, you know, I see pictures on my Facebook page from people and uh, all over the country and looks to be worse Elsewhere, I, I don't think it's all that bad here in New Hampshire. I agree with you. I, it may take a little while to get certain things, and, and I mean, yeah. I've noticed some thin spots uh, on the shelves in different yep. grocery stores. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. definitely there. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that we've all had to grow accustomed to. Our American society is spoiled. Pre-COVID, we could get what we wanted when we wanted and could have it shipped yeah. to our door within 24 hours and right. not thinking about it. Yeah. And that was whatever the heck we wanted. You could order a car and it would show up in your driveway within a couple of days. Yeah. So yeah. we have to settle in and realize that, okay, the, the supply lines are choked. It's one of the other complications of all of this when we naturally have to pull back from one another and can't do the same thing close quarters that we've been doing. So you're yeah. right. I, I, and I think that we've been fortunate in New Hampshire and even in this region a little bit of still having access to the things that we want and most importantly, access to the things that we need. But I, I also think that that's another new evolution. We're going to be interacting in new and different ways. Um, I heard someone on a, on ironically on a zoom call very recently say, you know, the, the baseline setting for a meeting used to be, well, we're going to assume we're starting the meeting in person. That's not the case anymore. I think the, the baseline starts with what's the best approach for this meeting. 
Can we do it in person? Should we do it from afar? And I think the remote connections that we have to one another is becoming more and more of a starting point. And we have to figure out when it comes to supply, when it comes to everything from education to healthcare to manufacturing, how that impacts the outcomes in the pipeline. And we're going to see an evolution in how we distribute goods, how we manufacture goods, how we provide services to folks. I think we'll see more automation where it can happen and can be afforded. And I just think we are, we're entering into a, a whole new chapter of our existence. Costs are higher. Salaries are going to be higher. Services are going to be different. Supplies and inventories are going to be different. But this is temporary. We're going to be changing to a new level that I think will be semi-permanent because COVID isn't going anywhere. But the, the hiccups and the challenges are temporary. And I think it's just a matter of, and I, you know, I, I need to practice what I preach. It's a matter of being patient and recognizing that this too shall pass. It's taking longer than we all thought, but we just have to be patient and, and, and work our way through it and look for the solutions as they present themselves. Well, certainly inflation is very much present in the Granite State and everywhere, everywhere that we go uh, in our country. And the supply shortage, we have a crisis at the border. How are all these issues going to play out when the 2022 midterm elections roll around in November? Ken, such a good question. I I think we have to start with the sort of historic trends in a midterm election. So here we are in the midterms 2022. We're halfway between the presidential election of 20 with Joe Biden's victory and his reelection bid of 24. And typically midterms, at least in New Hampshire, typically midterms benefit Republican candidates and the Republican Party as a whole. Add to that COVID, the frustration that we all have, the challenges like through inflation, the border situation, some of the other national issues that have cropped up and remain challenges. And I think what you have right now is an environment and the ingredients of an environment that would be tough for Democrats, tough for Joe Biden, tough for Dems who are running for reelection up and down the ticket. So as we're going into 2022, the wind is definitely in the sails of the GOP. And that's where we start the conversation. And yet, 2022 is still only in its infancy. We're only a couple of weeks in. Some things could resolve. Some issues could evolve over the course of the week that will change voter sentiment. But right now, there are not a lot of coattails for Joe Biden and the Democrats going into November of this year. So Republicans are licking their chops at the possibility of taking the majority in the House and Senate down in Washington and keeping that majority in New Hampshire. Yeah, it's a very thin majority right now for the Democrats, so that may not be very difficult to accomplish uh, given uh, the situation we're in right now. But the Republicans now have uh, three candidates who want uh, Maggie Hassan's seat in the United States Senate from New Hampshire, uh, General Don Bolduck, of course, who Mm -hmm. has uh, been in it uh, for a long time now. He has been running for a while. He's been joined by uh, Senate President Chuck Morse, and uh, Londonderry Town Manager Kevin Smith. Uh, How do you handicap that race? And uh, will there be more uh, candidates joining the pack? It's been a busy month uh, in that race, considering just last week you had both Senator Morse and uh, and Kevin Smith jumping into this race to join Don Bolduck. You ask a good question. I would never say never, but I do feel like the the Republican primary field is pretty well set at this point. Mm-hmm. We're hearing other names. Uh, we're waiting for a few others like Bill Binney of Binney Media, yeah. Frank Ginta, the former congressman. They haven't thrown their names out or in at this point. So we're still waiting. I wouldn't be shocked if the field grows a little bit, but 
Republicans now have some strong and quality options in this primary race. Um, if I were to handicap it at the moment, I would say that um, that this primary race to, to, to get through September for the right to run against Maggie Hassan, I would say the front runner at the moment would be Chuck Morse, with Kevin Smith being a very interesting and intriguing X factor in all of this as someone who 10 years ago ran as a younger guy for mm-hmm. governor. He's done a statewide race. He's been successful in Londonderry. He's known by the Republican uh, insiders in New Hampshire and has a great story to tell. Is very charismatic and charming. On the flip side, you've got Chuck Morse, who is the Senate president, who has establishment ties. He's got allies among what you would consider the Trump wing of the Republican Party. There's a reason why you may not have heard too much about him or too much about drama and chaos in the New Hampshire Senate. And that's because as Senate president, he's a no-nonsense leader. He's pragmatic, wants to get things done. He doesn't get too terribly caught up on philosophical differences. In fact, he prefers to set those aside and get to what we can do together. That kind of resume and the kinds of relationships that he has, I think, make him a formidable candidate. Anybody who is looking at him as a statewide candidate would say he may not be the most charismatic guy. He may not uh, set the world on fire with rhetoric and speech, but he's a real and accessible person. And I would say he's a lot like a Judd Gregg who enjoyed great success Mm, in New Hampshire as a pragmatic, principled, authentic Republican and good guy. And I think those are the kinds of words that will be attached to Chuck Morse for anybody who knows him. He has a story to tell as well and a resume. So it's a really interesting primary, but I would say Morse is starting off at the lead. Well, there you go. And, uh, you know, there could be the possibility the door is still open for another candidate or candidates to step through it. But uh, right now you think this could be it, the threesome that will be vying for the Republican nomination. I, th- I think so. Um, all three gentlemen have access to being able to raise substantial dollars. They will have to because this is now sprint mode. Back us up just a few months ago, and we all thought this is the Chris Sununu Senate race against Maggie Hassan. Sure. Yeah. Now you've got gentlemen with far lower name recognition statewide who have to introduce themselves and tell their stories. That's a whole chapter of the saga of a campaign for U.S. Senate for Republicans that didn't exist when we were talking about a Sununu campaign because he's so well-known and polls show that he's popular. This is a good thing for Maggie Hassan, but like we said a few minutes ago, with the environment being pro-Republican, she's working against the winds as it is right now. She's not someone to be underestimated, though. She's articulate and bright. She, I think, has avoided a lot of the chaos of Washington, but she's still tied to it because she's a sitting U.S. senator. And incumbents could very well be the focus of the frustration of voters for anybody that doesn't like what's going on right now. And she has to decide what she's going to do with and about Joe Biden, because his numbers, his popularity and approval ratings are low right now, which means he's not necessarily helpful to her. And this is a state where he hasn't done too well. So Ironically, she could trot out her resume and her work ethic and everything she's done for the state of New Hampshire, but she could very easily be judged by Republicans wanting to talk about Joe Biden and the administration. That could be an anchor around her boat <laughs> that sinks her. You, so it's it's a challenge. Do you see a lot of Democratic candidates for office uh, separating themselves or trying to separate themselves from Joe Biden? We saw a situation in Georgia last week sure. where Biden went down to talk about uh, voters' rights 
and Stacey Abrams, of all people. Yep. Uh, who, you know, is possibly a presidential candidate, mm-hmm. uh, or at least vying for the job in 2024. She stayed away from that appearance with she Joe did. Biden. I know she had a <clears throat> scheduling conflict, but you would think for the president of the United States, you could get out of that conflict. Yeah. I don't know what it was. I don't think anybody does. Uh, but uh, do you see more Democrats trying to separate themselves from the president? I think until his approval rating numbers start to go back up again and get to a place where he's above 50% approval, because he's below that right now, I think that's a real problem for the president, and Democrats will not go anywhere near him. There is definitely time for him to um, get some more things done with his, his agenda and for COVID to maybe improve a bit in terms of the overall atmosphere and the case numbers and the challenges we face. But um, that's a challenge for him. He has to wrestle back control of his own fate here a little bit, and that will help Democrats. That will help level the playing field which tilts towards the Republican Party right now. Yeah, right now it does. And, of course, you have two uh, Democrat uh, incumbents uh, in congressional seats, uh, Chris Pappas in District 1, and, of course, uh, Annie Custer in uh, District 2 uh, in the state of New Hampshire. And uh, there, uh, well, I I would say that, uh, you know, with redistricting going on, we don't know exactly where that's going uh, right now, but... You have to think at least uh, Mr. Pappas might be a little vulnerable. Yeah, and and you've mentioned the huge X factor in New Hampshire for these races, and that is redistricting. And I, I think for, for folks that are, are sort of wondering, as we sit here in Concord in the 2nd District, which is Annie Custer territory, as it stands right now in the 2nd District, and even with the factor of redistricting, Annie Custer's in really, really good shape to be reelected. She's got the geography. She's got the uh, the amount of time serving in office. And at the moment, she has a clear lane because Republicans haven't put up someone just yet, even, you know, uh, suggested folks to challenge her that would, um, I think, uh, overturn this race. Right now, the conventional wisdom, at least among people who pay attention to this kind of thing, say Annie's in really good shape. Mm-hmm. If they redistrict and take uh, seacoast communities such as Portsmouth and put that first district city into the second district for Annie and then take the town of Salem, which is a Republican stronghold out of the second district and put it into the first, just swapping those two towns right there makes Annie, um, a very formidable opponent for Republicans to try to unseat the second district. And when you flip this around for what are competitive races in the first CD for Chris Pappas, the incoming Congressman, that exact switch makes it extraordinarily difficult for him to retain his seat, not impossible because it still comes down to relationships, but that's going to be very hard because now he has to go. He can't count on some of those Democratic votes that are happening on the seacoast. That switch could make it very difficult. And so we're, we're waiting to see exactly what the, the, the final list of first CD Republicans looks like because they're definitely licking their chops uh, to unseat Chris Pappas. And some formidable formidable foes already uh, bet. in the Republican Party going after that uh, District 1 seat. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I'd, I'd, I always start the conversation like this with the person who had the party's nomination from the previous cycle. So Matt Mowers is the conversation mm-hmm. starter with something like this. Yeah. He's young. He's articulate. He's done this before. He never really stopped running. He took a pause had a child. Uh, congratulations, Matt. But um, he is a very strong competitor, and and we'll see 
what the rest of the field looks like as it starts to take shape. But I, I would start the conversation with him as the front runner, runner among the Republicans as we wait to see who else jumps in. I mean, obviously, you have Gail Huff Brown, mm-hmm. who is um, the other really talked about candidate, the right. wife of former Senator Scott Brown. And so, you know, she is a former TV person, media. Yep. We, you know, you yeah. and I know her. Well, we remember yep. her being on sure. TV. Many years at Channel 5. The delivery 5. Yep. of the message her presentation and her packaging is all going to be very strong. The question is, can she overcome what her husband couldn't and what others who have not had long established roots in New Hampshire or political roots in New Hampshire, can she come in as an outsider and uh, convince Republicans that she's the best bet? You know, that the cynics and her opponents will call her the carpetbagger and say, yeah, you just shifted up here. You, you threw roots down on the seacoast but you haven't even been here. You were an ambassador's wife in New Zealand. You were a senator's wife in Massachusetts. What do you know about New Hampshire? Um, that is a huge hurdle for her. But if she, anyone can talk her way through and around it, someone who's got a media and microphone comfort level background, well, she she's, she should be a strong candidate. We will see. And uh, there's Caroline Levitt out there as well. That's right. And uh, she worked in the uh, communications department uh, under in the Trump administration. In fact, all of these three people that we've mentioned now, Gail Huff Brown, Matt Mowers, and Caroline Levitt, all have ties to Trump. That's right. Yeah. And so that will be the Trump primary. And it could be as simple as no matter who is on paper the strongest candidate in that primary, if the former president weighs in with an endorsement, That's going to move the needle. We saw that happen more often than not in the last election cycle. In the primary, primary voters would largely follow the president. Not every time, but in in, in several cases. So Caroline Levitt, I I personally think her best pathway, and and maybe with her primary opposition, her only pathway, given that she is so young, that it would have to come through an endorsement from the former president. That's what would give her the kind of life um, that she would need for something like this, because otherwise you have you have two other people who can lay claim to that entire landscape of voters ahead of her. And it, it will it will make it challenging. I think there are a lot of voters who are perhaps closer to my age than her age who will say, what do you really know about what it's like to, I don't know, have a kid and lead a household and deal with the kinds of life experiences that I have? How are you going to represent my interests when you've never done that before? So it's not an impossible hurdle, but I feel like she has the most to overcome, and and Gail has um, a different level of challenges, which is why I start the conversation again with Matt Mowers. Mm-hmm. He's the one that I think is the one to beat. Scott Spradling is with us, and the time flies when he's uh, with us, so we have to take a quick break right now and uh, get back and uh, talk some more politics and other things as well here on Kale & Company at 1450 AM WKXL 103. Point nine FM in the Capital Region, uh, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond. We are presented by Weed Family Automotive, 124 Store Street in Concord. You can give them a call, make an appointment at 603-225-7988. Welcome back to uh, Kale and Company. Great to have you with us on 1450 AM, WKXL, 103.9 FM in Concord. And beyond, and the new signal we have, 101.9 FM in Manchester. We're presented by Weed Family Automotive, weedfamilyautomotive.com. Scott Spradling is our guest. We've been talking some politics here today and uh, just mentioned the Republican candidates uh, already in the District 1 congressional race. 
all three with ties to former President Donald Trump. Do you see the former president as a kingmaker, if you will, during the 2022 midterms? I don't know how he stays out of the pool. I think this is a this is a person who can um, score victories and and log wins that he can lay claim to as being responsible for the victory by doing these endorsements and seeing his candidates, not just win primaries, but win overall races. The one thing we simply don't know is his future for 2024. Will Donald Trump run for president again in what would be a, a potential rematch of the 2020 election? Mm -hmm. And none of us really knows yet. There's lots and lots of speculation. But no matter what, no matter what his decision, I absolutely see him being involved, being on stages, endorsing candidates, going to rallies, and being a presence on the campaign trail in 2022. That is a potential double-edged sword because at the moment, it's not 100% clear what level of popularity he has with the general election voting public. Mm -hmm. We know he's wildly popular among Republicans, yeah. but what about the independent voters? They are the ones that ultimately turn the tides yeah. in an election, no matter what, because most elections are reasonably close competitive. You don't win with an 80 to 20 vote. You win with a 55-45 kind of a, of a margin, and that's that is dictated by those folks who are not party-affiliated, are largely undecided until the last few weeks and even days, yeah. and they ultimately tilt the scales one way or the other. So we're a 51-49 kind of a country right now, so it's a jump ball. And so, independents, as you well know, are becoming more of a factor with uh, each election cycle. You bet. You could paint, Ken, you could paint a scenario where, let's just say, hypothetically, among independents and among Democrats who will turn out with similar numbers as Republican voters— uh, this is just hypothetical. It, uh, in that in that scenario, if Donald Trump remained unpopular among independent voters, then the more of his primary endorsed candidates that win, the greater the chance Democrats might have to actually keep a majority and do well on election day. That's not an unreasonable um, scenario, given the 2020 election results. Now, of course. Donald Trump is not president right now. Joe Biden is president. And the midterm elections are oftentimes a referendum on the incumbent in the White House and the incumbent majority party. So it's not that cut and dried. But Donald Trump is a kind of candidate that we've never seen before, the kind of president we've never experienced before. So he's both a lightning rod and a magnet for popularity. And so it's not clear what his impact will ultimately be. But I think it's very easy to predict at this point that um, he will play an outsized role in Republican primary races around the country as Republicans pick their nominees to challenge Democratic incumbents. One thing I do know, and he's still trying to raise a lot of money, yes. Donald Trump, and uh, where that money's going, I don't know whether it's to a, a future uh, presidential run or whether it's to, uh, you know, help uh, others in the Republican Party. I'm not exactly sure. But I know I get requests every day to make donations to the Trump campaign or, right. or, or Donald Trump in general. Yep. I can't say the campaign right now because we don't know whether <laughs> he's going to run or not. But, uh, you know, it seems, Scott, in, uh, you know, the 2024 is way off in the distance, but it's really not. Nope. And, uh, you know, once the, the midterms come to an end uh, in November and all that is decided, uh, pretty much the New Hampshire primary season opens up. That's right. As, as you well know. And. Uh, you know, you alluded to it, and the talk right now is it could 
potentially be a rematch. Absolutely. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I know you have a past with Hillary Clinton. You talked <laughs> about that uh, on the last time uh, the last time you were on the show. Indeed. Yes, and you have a past with her, and, and many people do. Uh, but uh, to me, in my mind, uh, if Hillary is the nominee, and, and I'm talking about against any it could be Donald Trump, it, it could be any number of people on the Republican bench, I, I think, honestly, that's the greatest gift that Democrats could possibly give Republicans. I agree with you. Yeah. And, and people are wondering, well, wait a minute, Joe Biden's president. Why are we talking about Hillary? But the, the, the scenario plays out that potentially Joe Biden decides not to run for reelection. And under the original scenario around 2020's election, the thought was Kamala Harris, our vice president, would be the next one to lead the party and just grab the, the banner and, and run. But we're hearing lots of reports that maybe there's a little bit of uh, drama behind the scenes that the, the president and vice president and the two teams that surround each of them aren't exactly getting along, that um, perhaps she's underperforming and underwhelming. Those are the reports. I'm not mm -hmm. saying I'm not owning that opinion. It's what we're hearing. But that could lead to a scenario for Democrats to start looking around and saying, OK, who else is out there? I personally don't see Hillary Clinton running for president again. I, I, I would be surprised as we sit here having this conversation now, knowing the landscape, because just as many people would, would talk about Donald Trump being a lightning rod for voters, yeah. so too is Hillary Clinton. And yeah. I'm not sure that changes. I'm not sure that ever changes with time. I don't think it'll change with time for Donald Trump either. But when you look at campaigns and candidates and, and how to try to determine the successful ones, before, during, and as we approach an actual vote, people need to keep in mind the three M's, money, message, and momentum. And when you're an incumbent, you need all three. When you are a high-level challenger like a Donald Trump, the reason why he's asking for these bucks from everybody via email, a Republican, Democrat, Independent, is because he needs the money to be able to invest in the candidates to generate some of that momentum. Mm -hmm. Their yeah. message right now is, you can't be possibly happy with what you invested in in 2020. So come back to us and we'll fix what's busted. That's going to be the, the underpinning of what Republicans are going to say. They're going to point to the other side and say, this ain't what you signed up for. This isn't good enough. We can do better than this. Come on back home and, and let's try this again. So the, the question is, will voters entertain the idea of going back to a Donald Trump presidency, the goods, the bads, and the uglies of that four years? Or do they look elsewhere and... Does Joe Biden run for re-election? And if not, then who is the standard bearer that that steps up at this point? There are other options, but it was gonna it will most likely, if that happens, that scenario is gonna look a lot like the primary of 2020 among the Democratic field. I'm not sure we have a lot of new faces. I think what you end up is uh you you start the conversation with recycling those candidates that that ran before Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, um, Amy Klobuchar. Those are the they're the conversation starters. And and we see what that looks like. And, and, you know, Bernie Sanders is still kicking around. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there has to be that um, progressive candidate. Elizabeth Warren yeah, is still out yeah, there. So, so. Yeah. Um, none of them are getting any younger in that wing of the party. You would need some fresh blood. So do you start looking at AOC? Who rises as a national candidate? And at the moment, what you have is a political landscape with a lot of people who have baggage, who have reasons for independence and large swaths of voters to say, yeah, not nah, too much of a lightning rod. Um, 
are we still searching for a candidate that is devoid of drama and just a pragmatic kind of a person? Or are we just dealing with lots of fireworks? To bring it full circle a little bit, Ken, back to the Senate race, it's one of the reasons why I uniquely think someone like Chuck Morse needs to be paid attention to because he's he's just as comfortable behind the wheel of a skid steer shoveling mulch at his uh, at, at his um, uh, landscaping business as he is sitting in the corner office at the third floor at the state house wielding uh, power to make huge decisions about our statewide budget. He is very approachable. He's an everyman kind of personality. He loves NASCAR. He enjoys being out uh, uh, you know, uh, to dinner with his wife. He likes uh, getting his hands dirty. He's a roll up his sleeves kind of a guy. He's a collaborator. He's not a dictator. And he's very sort of soft-spoken. He's an underspoken kind of a guy. That might be exactly what a lot of voters are yeah. looking for around here amidst the cacophony of chaos of our political cycles. So that's why I'm watching him closely because he might be that sort of not the 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 um, non-drama, a little quieter in the character department and a lot louder in the resume department. That might be what a lot of voters in New Hampshire are looking for, and maybe around the country, that's the kind of candidate that might actually resonate um, on a national stage. That's someone that isn't all noise and volume and charisma and 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 circus. Maybe it's the someone that feels a you know a little bit more like the um, every man every woman kind of getting the hands dirty personality exactly. exactly and and someone who hasn't been in the beltway for years exactly. and years or, or at all for that right. matter that's right Scott Spradling is with us and we have to take a quick break here on Kale and Company at fourteen fifty a.m. WKXL one hundred three point nine in the Capital Region one hundred one point nine in the Manchester area. We're presented by Weed Family Automotive, 124 Store Street in Concord. WKXL, New Hampshire Talk Radio, talking about what matters to you. We are back. It is Kale and Company. Scott Spradling is our guest today. And uh, we were just talking about uh, the possibilities for the uh, presidential election in 2024. Not that far away, folks. It, it seems to me, though, you, you rattled off some names from the Democratic Party and those who have run before, but it seems to me uh, the Republican bench of realistic candidates is deeper than the Democrats right now. I think so, especially when you're talking about maybe a national um, uh, electability. You have some really interesting characters, and you have also some personalities that are... Um, competing for the Trump wing of the Republican Party mm -hmm. and and what that would look like if the former president decided not to run. Uh, I think Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is probably your top option. If you are uh, if you are a huge fan of President Trump and are looking for someone who is a newer generation, but will will grab that uh, that that flag and, and keep marching up the beachhead with it. Mm -hmm. I, I think he's He's probably the guy. We all watched uh, Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, who who wants that in the worst way. I mean, it's uh, it's almost naked ambition when you look at, at what he's doing. But I think he's got he's got a lot more baggage as someone who's run before, as someone who has um, certainly not impressed uh, or pleased the former president himself. I mean, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump has taken some pretty harsh swipes at Ted Cruz. But Cruz has done a few things to take the luster off of his image as well. But he's still a factor. He's still a conversation because he's been in Washington. And you can't underestimate the, the knowledge base that can be applied to a campaign when you know how Washington really works. And that, that helps with 
getting stuff done with policy. That helps with raising funds. That helps with convincing the uh, the, the leadership uh, of each party. So for this case, the Republican, the leadership of the Republicans that are your campaign structure folks, the Republican National Committee, things like that, uh, convincing them that, that you're the person. So uh, those are... Those are a couple, but I mean, I, I also think, all right, so let's step outside of that immediate circle and look at someone like former Ambassador Nikki Haley, who mm-hmm. I think is yeah. um, a very, very popular option for Republicans who are looking for someone who would be steady and calm at the helm, who has international experience, who has some gravitas, who presents well, who can speak well, and has not brought the drama to conversation she's been a lot calmer in the grand scheme of things and so i think you know you you have others but i think those are those are three of your highest profile options outside of donald trump should he decide not to run in 24 could there be a wild card for the democrats you mentioned some of the recycled if you will candidates from 2020 and previous elections as well but could there be a wild card and the one i'm i'm thinking about uh, is michelle obama who has been discussed very interesting. So the easy answer is, oh, absolutely, yes. There could be a wild card uh, as as Democrats. So, and again, it all depends on what Joe Biden's going to do. He has said, I'm running for re-election. So academically, this whole conversation just may not happen because if the president's running for re-election, it's all in to back the White House, to back the administration, and here we go. And everybody pins their ears back and says, hopefully he can do it again. He won before. So we, we start with that. But setting that aside, The Michelle Obama conversation is a really fascinating one because she has a very high popularity rating. She remains someone who came out of the Barack Obama years as someone that is uh, beloved across the board. Her her popularity ratings remain very high. And that's the kind of person that you would have to rally behind as the wildcard fresh face candidate who I believe because of her unique experience as the first lady would be able to uh, make an argument. Make an argument that a lot of people will stop and listen to. And I think that that's a really, from a political science perspective, that's a really interesting option because she's never held office before. And yet she has been, um, she has slept in the building of the most powerful political office in the entire world. So you, you, you've got to know that she was um, an intimate part of what the Obama administration was doing. She played uh, an important role as first lady. Um, elevating good health and and dietary options for kids, being a um, a popular first lady, and so it would be a really interesting conversation. And my first question to that one would be: sitting back and just watching that. So let's play it out. So she runs. What kind of revisionist history do we go through of how much of a role she played in Obama administration decisions and conversations? Was she at the table? Because if you're going to run at that level. You're going to have to try and show some level of connectedness, which takes a little bit of the luster off of Barack Obama's presidency. But what did she do? What influence did she have? What decisions was she a part of? What rooms might she have been in during important conversations? Right now, the history is written that she wasn't in any of that, that she was the first lady who sort of stayed as a buffer away from that. But if she's running for president, she now has to strip down some of those barriers and buffers and say, yep, I was a part of it. And I don't think it's quite enough for it to be pillow talk between spouses. It has to be in the room with the thought leaders and decision makers to offer input to show that level of gravitas as a first lady. 
That would redefine what we all thought her role was under Barack Obama's presidency. So it's a really interesting conversation, but that's the kind of stuff she'd have to tackle, not just, hey, I'm a good person, you like me, so let's just go with this. You gotta show some connection to major decisions. It seems to me we, we had a president uh, recently that never held political office before. True. Yeah. So very it, true. It's not without precedent. No, uh, it definitely <laughs> isn't. But you know, the the again, the political science experiment that is looking at Donald Trump, the rise of him politically, his success, the presidency, the four years, and then the loss in the reelection. The one thing that Donald Trump has is a nationally known resume of business. And listen, I know someone listening just cringed saying, oh, yeah, Scott, what do we really know? We're still fighting over tax uh, uh, filings and, and, and reports. We're still trying to figure out what he owns and what kind of leader he was. But the reality is this guy has been a cultural uh, figure. And uh, in, in some ways, a business and even entertainment icon, mm -hmm. sure. he's been he's he's been in movies, everything from Home Alone to Ghostbusters. I mean, he's been in a bunch of different um, settings where he was propped up as the person um, uh, synonymous with absolute business success, unquestioned, mm -hmm. unbridled success. So that's I still have some of his time. Sure, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> and that's how, that's how he was propped up, right, in, in our culture. And he rode that wave of perceived success in the business world and strategy with a rhetoric that none of us had ever seen before. He rode that into the White House. A Michelle Obama formula isn't going to look anything like that because she doesn't necessarily have the universally accepted resume of business success. Even people that didn't like Donald Trump, when he first started kicking tires on doing this, I don't think that many people questioned whether or not he was successful. How do you question that? His name is on a bunch of buildings in New York City just to start with. Um, you can argue the successes and failures of a, of a lot of his projects and programs, but the guy's built an empire with his name on it. Um, that's successful. And you may not like how he did it, there may not be as much success as, as is proclaimed. We may have never had a chance to scrutinize the numbers, but you can't argue that that's the script. And that's what we all sort of knew with conventional wisdom going in. So we'll see because Michelle Obama literally has to build the image against what we already know. So she's got a platform of popularity, but what does she stand for and what would she do and how would that be different? And quite frankly, if Joe Biden's not going to run again and and Michelle Obama's running against maybe the sitting vice president. Well, that sets up a very interesting mm. debate over, well, you've had four years in the office to do something about it. I can do it better. That's a fascinating primary run right there. And I would grab the popcorn for that debate. Oh, absolutely. Scott Spradling is here at uh, 1450 AM WKXL 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and vicinity. Handling Company presented by Weed Family Automotive. 124 Store Street in Concord. Welcome back. It's Kale and Company. Scott Spradling is our guest. And you know what, Scott? Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> the hour is almost over. We have about a minute to go. I okay. must ask you about a gentleman who retired recently. And we're talking about Secretary of State Bill Gardner. Yes. You must have had many interactions with him. And in 30 seconds or less, uh, give us your impressions of uh, Bill Gardner. There will never be another quite like him. I, he was the uh, the absolute guardian of the New Hampshire primary. Don't know of anyone who could have done it better. And for as long as he did, he always held the interests of the New Hampshire primary and all voters as his top priority for protection. 
I feel like he oversaw our election cycles to where they were clean and well done. He was a throwback. He preferred paper over computers and technology. There will never be another like him. Dave Scanlon, I think, will serve very well for the state of New Hampshire. He's been at Bill's side for decades at this point. He will be a good and and an earnest Secretary of State. I think we still uh, are in good hands, but there will never be another Bill Gardner. I'll miss my friend in that second floor corner office. Scott Spradling, thank you very much. You have to come back soon because there's so many other things to talk about, but we appreciate it. I'm in, my friend. Good to see you. That'll do it for this edition of Kale & Company on WKXL, presented by Wheat Family Automotive, wheatfamilyautomotive.com. WKXL, New Hampshire Talk Radio, talking about what matters to you.